From GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. What is up? What is up? Welcome back to What's Up. <laughs> I think we're going to try and do a different intro for every single episode yeah, that we, we do Yeah, we can here. try that. Yeah, and make every single one different. Or we'll finally find something that actually works and yeah. we'll just keep doing that. But every time's a little bit different. Welcome back, guys. Another another Friday recording here and episode releasing on a Wednesday, obviously. So You're almost there. It's hump day. You're almost there. You're almost, almost at the end. Friday. <laughs> but we're here to get you through it. You know, whether you're driving in the car right now, listen to us, whether you're sitting in your cube, we're here just to tell you a little something about the world and why it's awesome. Where do you listen to most of your podcasts? In the car. Totally 90% in the of the car. time. Same. Yeah. I do a lot of driving, sales industry, and then back and forth. So I do a lot of driving, throw on a nice podcast and just kind of cruise and listen to everything yeah same here learn same something here. a little bit maybe laugh a little bit oh i love laughing but then i want everybody to hear why i laughed so then i have to you like have to tell us tell yeah. everyone and then we i'm know. like you have to listen to like precisely this time and then it's just very prescription you can't do that with podcasts i know it's just very prescribed except ours do that with ours yeah you could do that with ours yeah absolutely but I'm always like, at 139, it's really funny. Oh, wait, you have to back it up because you need the full landscape of what yeah, we talking about. Yeah, just listen to the full episode pretty yeah. much. Make sure you stream it. We want those numbers to be full. Full. We yeah. want everybody to listen to the entire thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to get into what's in the news right away before we have an awesome interview for you guys today. So this episode, I'm going to go first because we're going to flip things around. So... Today's Watts in the News, uh, we found actually something that's been bouncing around quite a bit. Marie and I have kind of found this separately, but we uh, are going to take a little bit more of a deep dive into it because it, the article itself sounds a lot more complicated than what it actually is. It's, it's an article, and I found a couple of them, but it's essentially it's solar panels that are harnessing energy from deep space or harnessing energy from the darkness. There's been a lot of articles written about essentially mm-hmm. the exact same idea for it, but... What the article really touches a lot on is that it starts off a bunch with exactly what we already know about solar panels, is that they require the sun. They require solar energy to be able to do them. Excite the electrons, as you say. Yeah, exactly. Moving them through all the wires, and that's how you get electricity. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. See, you're learning. I am. You're learning. Um, But it, it gets into a little bit that that's you know kind of limitation. And, and along with wind also, it's, it's very reliable on one thing that unfortunately humanity has not figured out how to control yet. And that's the weather. We just don't really know. And another problem with it is that we can't turn, we can turn them on and off, but we can't essentially turn them on and off. You know, so as far mm-hmm. as from operating a grid standpoint, the grid now has to operate around solar panels and wind turbines rather than the turbines and the panels operating kind of in conjunction with the grid right i the way that i read that is that the grid can take some forms of electricity and say i need you over here i Mm -hmm. need you over here where with solar energy it can't necessarily call upon it um it's just being for lack of the better term flooded with it yeah it just kind of shows up when the Mm -hmm. sun's out and it wants to whereas you have like your let's say nuclear plants for example where if you need more power, the plant can kind of turn up the power. Turn up the heat. Whereas when, when the solar when the sun is out, I mean, we could turn off the panels, sure, but because a lot of it's on end user, you can't just like turn off people's systems. Right. So now they have to like turn down, you know, the nuclear power because there's so much sun. And it 
it makes for a complicated grid structure. So one of the things, obviously, that has been promising for it is battery storage, right? Being able to store this energy. But as Vox is reporting, to get to 100% renewables, where a lot of countries are wanting to go, a lot of states even, um, you know, we need to see about a 90% drop in battery costs from today's cost. Yeah. So it's going to be need to be substantial, and battery storage technology is just not where it needs to be to be large-scale deployment like that. So that's kind of where this article comes into place, is that there's a lot of research going on from Stanford, MIT, all the big places that do research into how do we take a solar panel that is going to generate energy not only during the day, but at night as well, too. So it sounds like a very complicated process because it's not really a solar panel. You know, it's not going to be the same panel that you put on your house that is going to generate energy during the day and during the night. Mm-hmm. It's just because it's two different types of cells. So what you get into is that your solar panel is a photo cell. It's a photovoltaic cell. So it uses photons of energy from sunlight, turns that into electricity for you. What would be going on to this one, where it's the energy from deep space, is a thermal panel. Oh. What this is trying to do then is to absorb low wave or low frequency um, you know, radiation, low level radiation, basically. Wavelength. That's the right word. Okay. Low wavelength energy. So heat, mainly. So basically what this is, is talking about is using the process or the 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 thing known as a heat sink. So it kind of gets into the cycles of how energy works. So if you look at wavelengths worth of power, the sun is putting out things at a very small wavelength. So they're very close together. And this is very high energy power coming in to the planet. Now okay. it puts out all forms of, of wavelengths for it too. Um, some very high energy, some very low energy. The earth then is absorbing that and it's heating up, it's collecting that. Once it gets dark, you know, the planet turns, you're away from the sun. Now what that earth starts doing is taking that stored energy as heat and then re-radiating it back out into space, mm-hmm. essentially at a much at a greater wavelength, but is lower energy as far as the actual you know, radiation goes. So what this would be doing is essentially the opposite of kind of where a solar panel is, where it's taking in the light and it's turning it from electricity. What this is going to be doing instead is taking that difference between the energy being radiated, so the heat coming from the planet versus the cold coming in, the cold, I guess, if you will, in quotes there, from space. You know, that there's no energy coming in taking that thermal difference and making that electricity. So essentially, as radiation is coming from the Earth back out to space, you're taking, you're harnessing that power and turning to electricity. Wow. Weird, complicated. So are they thinking that these would be bifacial modules? Potentially. It's... it's Potentially. It's, it's, this is very, very new kind of technology and thoughts on the terms of that you're looking at like half a watt worth of power per meter squared so 
very, very low amounts of power as of right now. Yeah. But if you were to kind of draw it out, right, and this is kind of the way that I had to think about it, was during the day you have energy or whatever you want to call it, right, light wavelengths or something. Imagine just like a squiggly line, right, coming from the sun and it's down to the earth. Mm-hmm. And in between that is a solar panel and that makes electricity. Right. When it's nighttime then, you have your squiggly line starting at the earth and going out into space. That solar panel is still in between. Yeah. So you're taking that same energy but it's coming from the earth. So it's a little bit less energy dense. Right. Because it's it, the higher energy, you know, wavelengths of light are coming from the sun. So it, it's harder to get that power, essentially. There's there's not as much power available for it, but it's definitely a very large source that if we can tap into it properly, you could have a panel that essentially produces power all day. How is that, how is that not going to heat up the atmosphere, though? So the Earth is already doing this. It's already... You, were, you would just trap it. Exactly, yeah. The same way that the sun is already pushing down energy and light onto our planet you know it's it's heating up the planet as it is we're just putting something in between the sunlight and then the earth and turning into electricity this is the earth is already going to be radiating that heat back out Mm -hmm. into space we're just going to put something in between it that's going to capture that it's like essentially think of it as like a river right if you have fish going up that river you just put a net in there, and now you can catch some fish. Look at this metaphor. That's a hell of a metaphor, right? Think of it as like a river. Yeah. It's a solar panel or a thermal panel or whatever this is, it's like putting a net in the middle of there. We're going to catch some of the stuff. We're not going to catch everything, but we can use some of that stuff that we caught for something that we need it for. I like it. It's an interesting concept. It's got a long way to go. Energy. Yeah, I'm only seeing these as ground mounts. I'm not seeing them as yeah. fixed roof modules. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's mostly like infrared radiation. It's coming off of off of the mm-hmm. planet. So imagine if your house was like possessed, then you'd get those <laughs> ghost waves too. Yeah, exactly. Wait, okay, ghost waves? Or what are they? You know, they have the like little ghosts. Um, you guys can't see this right now, but I'm just blank staring very right now. He's blank staring as like it's a when you go into a haunted place, you carry this little like radio thing. Are we gonna do the the ghost debates right now? Is this what it's, like, it's gonna turn into? And then it it has like a little ticker, and if there's energy being felt, the ticker like goes all the way. Whatever. Do you want to have a ghost debate right now? <laughs> I it, don't. No, no. But it's this was this gonna turn if to? If it's haunted, that's a lot of energy. Potentially. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> That's the right word for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Haunted. Let's come, let's circle back to that one. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about if ghosts are real on a different episode. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Marie, what article do you have? Well, it's not about ghosts. Uh, okay. It's about Ryan's other passion project, and that is EVs. Ah, oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, so like I say, I feel like I've been saying this a lot lately. We are doing an episode on EVs. Um, that's something Ryan, as we all know, Ryan has said numerous times that he has spent a lot of time with researching EVs. He has a, yours isn't an EV. Yeah. It's it an, is it's an, an EV. electric vehicle. It's an electric vehicle. It's a hybrid electric vehicle. Okay. 
So he I, has a, a half a EV. Yeah, I'm a half there. I spent a lot of time. One of my old jobs, I spent a good amount of time just researching electric vehicles. And so um, the article that I have is ChargePoint has teamed up with U.S. truck stops to expand EV adoption. Oh, okay. So as we all know, and it's been big in the news, that there are a lot of vehicle companies like Ford and General Motors, Mm -hmm. um, VW I think is another one, that are putting billions of dollars into the development and launch of new EVs. Yeah, even look at the Super Bowl this year. There was a commercial for Porsche's new, I think it's Taycan, Taycan, their electric vehicle, and then Audi's electric vehicle as well, too. Yeah. All these companies are just getting on the electric, and mm-hmm. they are now acknowledging that this that's the new wave. It's, yeah, it's going to be the thing. I mean, there's it's just going to happen. I mean, when you look at an electric motor versus a gas motor, it's incredibly more efficient. The only mm-hmm. thing holding it back is just the battery and the charging infrastructure. Right. And so ChargePoint, exactly, is getting in on um, being a solution for the infrastructure. I, if anybody has an EV charger, you can find uh, ChargePoint chargers all around mm-hmm. the area. Um, specifically, we went to McCormick Place in Ryan's car, and we got to plug his car into a charge point. Yep. And so they've teamed up with the National Association of Truck Stop Operators. I didn't know that was so an association. So they are looking to install level two and DC fast chargers at more than 4,000 locations by 2030. Wow. And they are looking for these locations to be along the highway and or in rural communities. That's smart. Because that's going to allow people to take long, have long mm-hmm. distance travel, which I know is a drawback for a lot of people. It's the main one. EVs. Yeah, range anxiety is is just the number one thing as oh, far as- Oh, there's a name for it? It's, yeah, range anxiety. is hmm. like, if you look on the, on the websites, you know, when I was buying my car, that was one of the things they even talked to me about was range anxiety. It's one of the reasons that I only have a half electric car because I drive around a lot. So I yeah. need to have that kind of in between there. But, you know, when you have like a Tesla, for example, it because they have their own network kind of going on, you can plot your course through charging stations. Yeah. And then, you know, stop here and there and sit there for a half hour to be able to charge it. So the speed of which is going to be an interesting one. But it's awesome that they're trying to build out this network. Yeah. And they mentioned that. And I did a little bit of research on they say the level two and DC fast chargers. Mm-hmm. Both of those are faster um, yeah. charging but the level two notably um, they stated they were for like Mercedes and it seemed like more premium model so you can use them pretty much everything okay so commonly like level one is referred to and I'm just gonna totally hijack no that's fine here. that's fine uh, level one is what you see as like what pretty much comes with the cars you're gonna plug this into a 110 outlet it's gonna take forever to charge your car but it is charging essentially yeah. right level two is what you're going to see when you're just driving out in the wild and you see it like on a restaurant or right. a movie theater, something like that. So That's they all said level two. Level two was 240 volts. Yes. Yeah. And so you need to have a special outlet put into your house mm-hmm. for it or you may not already have it. Um, if you go to public places and you find a charger there, there's a 99% chance it's a level two charger. It's yeah. going to charge a little bit faster. The DC fast charging is like your Tesla supercharger. It's extremely fast, but only certain vehicles are actually capable of doing it. So like example, I have a Chevy Volt. My car is not able to do DC fast charging. Mm-hmm. The battery is just not built for it. And it's also not big enough. You really only need to do fast charging on 
your fully electric vehicles, you know, your Chevy Bolts, your you know, new Audis, the the Teslas, the things that it's got this massive battery that you need to charge it very quickly. It's like you read the article yourself. <laughs> That's exactly um, everything that it was saying. So these are the faster charges. It did estimate about two hours to get a okay. full charge. So, I mean, when you're on a road trip, like you just want to get there. Right. That's still a drawback. However, it is making, you know, maybe you stop for the night in a mm-hmm. place to charge your vehicle for yeah, a Yeah, absolutely. Hours. Maybe you or, stop for dinner or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then they were estimating that by 2030, there will be 100 130 million EVs on the road. So charge point is definitely getting that infrastructure in place to handle that. And it seems like they're modeling a lot off of Tesla's network. Yeah. Um, Then they're huge. I think charge points, one of the largest charging networks, if not the largest charging network in at least the U S maybe if not even the world, they're one of the larger ones. I know Volta is out there too. Mm -hmm. They're more commonly putting things around like shopping malls. It's kind of their big thing. There's one outside the movie theater near my house. But I mean, all, all great options, you know? So I thought that was a great article. I thought it also tied in with our conversation with Ambient Energy. And we talked with him about lead certifications and making your office space usable, energy efficient. Mm-hmm. And this is just something else that a office or business could have in place to make the, the work life of yeah. their employees yeah, easier. The employee experiences everything. You know, customers that I work with, even who buy solar from us, you know, they have electric cars and a lot of them I talk to, they can charge at work or they charge somewhere, you know, out in the public. So they're not always having to use their own, you know, house power for it. Right. Um, so we are going to continue the conversation on EVs and charging stations and all that later in the season. Um, but here is the episode with our interview with Clayton and Ambient Energy. We welcome on Clayton Bartzak with Ambient Energy. Uh, he's a sustainability team leader. Clayton, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. We happy are, to be here. Yeah, we're very happy to have you. So why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? How did you find yourself at Ambient? And, uh, you know, kind of uh, overall, what is what do you guys do at Ambient? Right. Well, let's see. Answer to the first question. I, like many folks in this industry, have kind of a winding road that led me here. Um, I, I kind of started out getting into sustainability through work that I was doing more on the social justice side of things. And so I spent some time in the AmeriCorps program after college. And through that program, I was working with Habitat for Humanity. And uh, Habitat for Humanity has a very strong energy efficiency and green building program uh, at some of their affiliates, and especially the one I was working at in. Denver had a really strong emphasis on uh, green building and making sure that their homeowners had, um, you know, low, low cost, not just to purchase a home, but ongoing operational and energy costs too. So that sort of led me into it. And from there have been uh, working at Ambient Energy for almost 10 years now. And uh, we are, we're a company that's based out of Denver. We do work all over the country, um, primarily in the Western USO. We also have an office in San Francisco. And we basically offer uh, sustainability and energy consulting services, uh, primarily related to the built environment. So we're mostly working in uh, new construction, as well as um, buildings that are already built and operational. And we, we help our project teams uh, complete things like uh, lead certification, which is a green building rating system developed by the U.S. Green Building Council, 
that sort of measures the performance of a building in terms of its sustainable attributes and strategies. And we also have a team that does building performance engineering. So they're mostly doing energy modeling and daylight analysis and whole building life cycle assessment for looking at like embodied carbon and things like that. And then we also have a commissioning team who uh, basically does design reviews and helps the project team implement strategies that are will ultimately lead to more efficient building systems and uh, things that are, you know, they deal with constructability issues and making sure that the systems as designed can actually be built and operated like that. And then they come in after the building is completed and help to uh, commission the systems, meaning they go in and they test them all, make sure that the mechanical and electrical systems are working as designed so that the owner can move in and, and have an efficient building from day one. So that's kind of what we do at Ambient Energy and how I got into the field. Wow. So can you tell us over your 10 years from when you first started to where you are now, what sort of things have changed in energy efficiency developments and building practices? Yeah. So it's interesting because I think at you know, 10 years ago, things like the lead rating system were quite new. And so people were just sort of starting to understand how to implement strategies that that will help them achieve a lead certification or a Energy Star certification for a, a building. And, and I think in, in that time, you know, strategies are constantly evolving. So, so the things that we're doing in our buildings today are in a lot of ways different from from what we were doing 10 years ago and and at the same time a lot of ways they're the same we have i guess it's it's interesting to me because i feel like this is one of these situations where we have all the technological fixes to energy efficient and sustainable buildings mm-hmm. and it's just more you know creating the will to implement those and finding the budget for that and so that's a big part of what we do is we help our clients to implement strategies that don't necessarily have to cost them more because they're saving in other ways. Um, so for example, if you, if you implement a, a very efficient uh, mechanical system for heating and cooling uh, and have a smart envelope design for your building, then your mechanical system can probably be smaller. And, and a downsizing mechanical system helps a lot with cutting costs at, at you know, the first, first point in time for that building. So, um, but I would say overall, there's, there's other strategies, things like renewable energy systems that the price has drastically come down in also. So, so we're seeing more and more of our projects implementing things like photovoltaic systems on their buildings, just because the, the technology has advanced enough that it's less expensive. And then there's other things that, uh, that we have always recommended, right? Like we always want to see people installing, um, products and materials that have a lower toxicity and, and create better indoor air quality, right? So mm-hmm. those there's some things that haven't changed. Now, I will say, though, that there's aspects of that that have been um, furthered along by things like lead certification and the, you know, different green building systems that are out there. And, and, and those systems help drive the market to create better products and it also helps drive the market to be more transparent with their products. So um, like the current version of LEED, LEED version 4 and 4.1, there are opportunities for project teams to install products and sort of get credit for them that those products 
don't necessarily have a better environmental performance, but they have released information about their products so that we understand what's in them and what the environmental impacts of those are. And that's a great first step, right? It's kind of like the nutrition label on a cereal box. You got to know what's in it before you can make a decision about it. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually, I'm glad you mentioned renewable energy because I was going to bring that up. That is that one of the trends that you would say is probably growing a lot in corporations or do you mainly work with corporations or like residential areas? Yeah. So, um, ambient energy, we have a very broad service and sector types that we serve. So we do everything from, uh, municipal and state and federal government work, which could be, uh, transit facilities or, uh, courtrooms or, um, you know, even federal laboratories is a, is a big thing that we've done a lot in the past few years. But then we also do a lot of work in multifamily residential and, um, you know, hospitality, hotels, things like that. So, so we, we're kind of all over the place as far as the types of projects that we're engaged in. Um, but I would say that, yeah, we're, we're finding that more and more project teams are looking to renewable energy systems as a way to um, not only uh, reduce the energy, uh, the fossil fuel produced energy, at least that they're building is using, but also as a way to really show their uh, commitment to sustainability and, and uh, clean energy sources. So it's kind of funny because renewable energy is one of those things, especially with photovoltaic panels or PV panels, it's, you know, usually you can see them. And so uh, our clients really like to implement strategies that that their tenants or that their students or that their customers can also see. Mm-hmm. They want to be they want to have a visible and tangible, uh, you know, demonstration of their commitment to sustainability. And I think this tends to be one of these situations where we, we always have to be careful because we want to make sure that our clients and and their buildings and their organizations aren't kind of greenwashing where they're making themselves look like they're doing things in a sustainable way that really aren't. So, you know, we always incentivize them to, uh, to make their buildings as efficient as possible before they get into renewable energy systems. So, so we like to say that, you know, we always encourage people to, uh, eat their energy efficiency vegetables before they get their <laughs> renewable energy desserts. You know, yeah, it's just, I, I think that's perfect. Yeah. We, uh, so, so in our day to day, you know, we're we're doing solar too, and uh, it's kind of our the main mainly what we do. We're kind of podcasting on the side here, and I would say that exact same thing that we work most of the time. Any kind of commercial property, or if like a business or a school or something, they're all making sure to very much make their panels very viewable. So that everybody knows that they're doing something with clean energy because it's such a great PR move. Right. Yeah, and it's funny. We had one client recently who uh, it's a, a, a university organization. And so they have a strong direction from their student groups that they want to see not only sustainable strategies implemented, but they want them to be visible. They want to know that they're there. And so they installed a PV system on a rooftop. And it was interesting because at the same time, uh, this was last year, at the same time, they also installed, uh, they did a deployment of a new energy management software that would help to turn off computers and lighting systems in their uh, library building 
in at night when they weren't being used. Okay. Well, this this very simple behind the scenes software that wasn't visible, no one even knew it was doing anything. That was actually saving more energy than this PV system You're was kidding. creating for them. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of one of those funny things where it's like you want to have visible strategies because they are they help people see that you're doing things right, but that shouldn't be the end of what you're trying to do. There's always strategies that that can't be seen that that might have a bigger impact ultimately. Yeah, and I've I've seen something very similar in day to day, like selling residential solar systems, you know, solar arrays. That oftentimes people once they are signing up that they're going to purchase an array and put it on their house, their usage, their utility needs often drop in the mm-hmm. months or weeks between signing up to buy a system and actually going on their house because now they're finally becoming energy conscious. So they're not leaving the lights on there or like turning the TV off before they go to bed rather than falling asleep with it on. Like all of a sudden now we're seeing their energy needs are decreasing because they finally, they done, they've taken step one to think about their energy needs. And now step two is kind of creeping into their mind. Right. Yeah. We've, we see in, in the commercial sector for sure that, uh, energy benchmarking is really important that people understand how much energy their building or their home is using and compared to other similar building types. And, you know, they've been shown, I think Energy Star has done studies uh, that show that facility managers who, who actually measure their energy and water use, they get, you know, they tend to find on average two to three percent savings just by monitoring those systems not even making any specific reductions but just monitoring allows you to you know create savings because you're understanding your use and you're just being smart about it so it's it is very important to do that too so can you tell us the different types of analytic um data that you guys run through either software or monitoring systems yeah so we are um when we're when we're using uh, our energy modeling process to help inform the design during uh you know we, we try to get involved as early as possible so usually we're involved in sort of a concept level and doing some really what we call simple box energy modeling where we where we're just looking at sort of the massing of a building and the orientation, which way does it face compared to the sun? How tall is it? How wide is it? What what are the general components? How many, how, what is the window to wall ratio? Those are things that we look at for a really big picture view early, early on. So before there's really a design developed, we can help them optimize performance in that way. And that's a great first step. Um, and then throughout the process of design, so during schematic design, design development, will help them by creating uh, energy models that uh, often rely on the geometry created through the, the architect's Revit files and, and, and CAD files that we can then turn that into a computer model that will uh, help, help us analyze different options. So we can go in and say, well, if you uh, change out these double-pane windows for triple-pane windows, that will have this impact on annual carbon emissions and on the uh, annual cost for your energy use in this building. Um, We do similar uh, things with daylight analysis. So when we're doing a daylight analysis, we're actually looking, we actually create a visual three-dimensional model of the building and analyze daylight at different times during the year so that we can help inform our clients in, in a way that 
they can maximize the natural daylighting that comes into the building, but also so that they can make sure they're they don't they're not creating glare problems, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of great buildings have um, a, a lot of buildings have great daylighting opportunities with sunlight that comes in, but if that glare isn't controlled in a way that's uh, beneficial for the for the occupants then the occupants are uncomfortable they can't see their computer screen and and ultimately they end up closing the blinds and getting no daylight so we we have to sort of balance between providing quality daylight with uh, making sure that we mitigate the glare issues as well right um and then one more thing i'll mention i guess there too is that uh during the uh during the design construction process and then into operations we also utilize a software tool um, that helps us do what we call monitoring-based commissioning. So we happen to use a tool called SkySpark, and there's you know a number of different tools out there on the market that, that can be used. But SkySpark helps us to uh, basically collect trend data for the different systems and monitor mechanical and electrical systems so that we can tell without having to go out and physically inspect those systems if there's a problem with them. So, for example, we might notice that uh, in collecting this trend data that there's one area of a building that is constantly too warm, and that might help us to understand that there's an issue with one of the dampers in that particular system. That can then go be targeted, looked at individually, without having to go out and look at every single system in the building. So um, it sort of helps speed up the process of commissioning and helps with a sort of ongoing monitoring of that to make sure systems are still functioning properly. That sounds like a lot of uh, sophisticated stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, seriously. I'm, uh, I'm huge into analytics. Ryan is too. And we're just constantly like refreshing various pages on, you know, whatever it is, um, especially on the marketing side. I'm just constantly refreshing pages looking at analytics so i think i would be uh i would love to see all this stuff (laughs) happy to share more with you for sure that would be awesome yeah you know if there's one thing that all clients like it's numbers and they all like to just see numbers and things going around and around around they may not even know what it is but they just love numbers (laughs) right (laughs) one thing question i have when you guys are going in and proposing all these ideas like changing out the windows or the lighting fixtures or doing you know renewables do you ever get any pushback from these clients you're working with to be like, yeah, that'd be great and it sounds awesome, but like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of times we um, we do sort of come up with uh, pushback at first when, you know, with certain strategies that are, that are uh, you know, recommended. And in part that's because humans in general, we're, we tend to be a little bit hesitant to implement strategies that are new to us, right? So we always want to go back to what's known and what's easy, what's simple, the things we know work, and regardless of what the environmental impacts of those things might be, we, we, we tend to want to implement those things that we that we know will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we do see that pushback a little bit. And I guess one other thing that we see is that we, you know, part of our job and what we are, you know, really pride ourselves on is not just in recommending strategies, but really helping our clients um, gain some knowledge and educate them on, you know, how do the systems work and what, what is the benefit to them, whether that's short-term economics, long-term economics, or both, or 
you know, are there other more sort of soft benefits that are harder to quantify, like uh, issues like I said about uh, glare control, right? Um, you know, there's there have been a lot of studies that show that people that have issues with glare in their workspace are just not as productive. And so we help we can help our clients understand if they are maximizing productivity of their employees and uh, maximizing uh, student retention for school buildings, that there are very real benefits to those strategies. And so even if there's a, a short term, uh, you know, economic uh, hesitancy regarding implementing those, it is, you know, ultimately in the, in the long run, it's to their advantage to do that. And so, so a lot of our job is to help them understand those issues and quantify some of those, uh, some of those sort of soft benefits that come up. Um, and then also the other piece of that is that the other thing we do is we help our clients really understand what the different options might be for financing some of these strategies. So, there's a ton of different ways that energy efficiency and sustainable strategies can be financed. Um, things like utility incentives, grant programs, tax credits, and even things like um, uh, property assessed clean energy, which is PACE. We have in Colorado, it's called CPACE. And, we, and that's basically a way that project teams can take advantage of, of a uh, uh, property tax assessment that will help them pay for uh, strategies that reduce their energy use. And so there's there's a lot of different ways we have to we help our clients to understand. Okay, here's what the costs are. Here's what the benefits are. And here's your options for how to pay for it. That's Very fantastic. Nice. Very nice. One of the things I uh, I wanted to jump back to. I, you mentioned it kind of in your introduction, but I want to make sure we we dive a little deeper into it. Is lead certification. It's very from from what I know about it, kind of uh, laborious to to do. But what laborious. is the yeah? It's no, it's a great word. Um, <laughs> can you just run us through how does an office or a corporation or a company a building become lead certified? Yeah. So well, there, so there's a lot of different options for things like lead certification. And again, lead is one of many green building rating systems on the market. It happens to be the most widely used you know, global standard for green building rating systems, but there are several others, including Green Globes and Bream. And, you know, we, we always recommend the Living Building Challenge as well, which is kind of the, the most progressive and um, um, most sustainable, so to speak, building rating system that exists. But um, overall, the, the process is that, you know, our, our clients tend to look to us in during the beginning of the design phase. So, so usually during concept or at latest schematic design we get involved with them and help them strategize on what sort of things make the most sense for their project for their building and 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 so that's for a new construction project um and you know so we work with them throughout the design to help implement strategies and get the design team members whether they be mechanical engineers electrical engineers architects structural engineers and then ultimately the contractor um, we help them understand what the process is and sort of navigating that process of implementing the strategies that make the most sense for them, that help them achieve whatever their goal is. So, so you know, usually for us, the very first step is understanding what is the goal for the project. Are they interested in lead certification because they have clients that are asking about it or customers or tenants? 
Are they interested in long-term energy savings? Do they want to just make uh, you know positive environmental impact? Like, what is it that's helping them you know want to pursue this? So that's always you know paramount to to getting them to a certification is is understanding what the goal is. Um, and then I was saying there are a variety of, of different options for lead certification. So there's lead certifications for all different building types. Uh, the primary one that's used is for uh, lead lead for building design and construction, which is mostly for commercial buildings. And but there are various uh, different um, sort of uh, rating system variations of that. Um, so there's things like lead for warehouses and lead for healthcare, lead for wow. schools, right? So there's a lot of different options. And then even within those, there are options for certifying and, and working on the performance of buildings that are already built and already under operation. So, for example, the Colorado State Capitol was um, one of the very first lead for existing buildings uh, certified projects in the state of Colorado and I think even in the country. And, and so that's a, you know, it's a 150 year old building that's been, uh, operating for a long time and was designed without sustainable, so to speak, uh, energy management systems. And, and so the lead for existing buildings and, and, and right now it's called operations and maintenance, O&M, that, that, rating system is is really applicable for any building type uh, that is is interested in making an impact and operating more sustainably so through that process it's it's not just about the energy that's used in that building but the uh you know we help our building owners look at things like what sort of uh cleaning programs are being uh implemented in the building so do they have a green cleaning program where they're using less toxic materials what sort of materials are being purchased and products? What are they purchasing furniture that has recycled content and, uh, you know, that can be disassembled and reused? And are they purchasing Energy Star computers, for example, and AV equipment? So there's a lot of different ways that, that we help our, our partners implement these sustainable strategies, whether it's a new building or a building that's already under operations. Um, so that's kind of how that works in a nutshell. Very nice. Yeah, I know there's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle. When I was in college, uh, a lot of the buildings around campus were trying to, to get LEED certified, you know, at least on the on the lower levels of it. And there's it was like a multi-year process for them to try and do it. Yeah, well, and fortunately now, so in the past couple of years, uh, the U.S. Green Building Council, USGBC, has uh, released a new sort of version of uh, the lead for existing buildings rating system. And right now that's under the heading of lead version 4.1. And that, that process has been simplified greatly. So, so we have a few of those projects going through that certification now. And one of them is a university client and they're implementing a, uh, lead v 4.1 project for an existing residence hall so it's basically you know college dorms and there's a dining hall facility there and so what they what they needed to do for that was sort of do some reporting on the energy used in the building and that gets benchmarked against other similar building types and they basically get a score for that and then they've also done things like implement a waste audit where they go out and they 
look at through their waste. They understand what the different waste streams are that they're producing in this building. And then they make plans to reduce those waste streams as applicable, whether that's through recycling, compost programs, reuse programs, whatever that might be. Um, you know, they're able to understand their, their material waste much better through that process. The other thing that, that, that the performance aspect of lead and lead V 4.1 for O&M is, is very important for is that you actually go out and do some indoor air quality measurements and make sure that not only has the building been designed and built in a way that uses less toxic materials, but that during its operation, that the indoor air quality inside the building is healthy so that the occupants aren't getting sick and getting headaches um, because those things all contribute to, you know, absenteeism and people being missing work in school because they're sick or even just simple as productivity that, you know, it's hard to focus uh, when you have really bad air quality. And so that's something that we always look at to help them manage and mitigate. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a big, big thing to consider. And there's, it's, it's nice to hear you guys are in kind of all sectors of energy and sustainability really, because it's, you know, it really is an entire ecosystem. We talked with another uh, consulting firm too, and they like to describe it as an energy ecosystem that everything kind of plays together and that it's not, there's no one solution to, you know, energy savings and, and being clean and, and helping around our own world. So it's nice to hear you guys are in everything. What are some things, as our final question, what are some things that homeowners or, uh, or small to medium business owners um, can be doing to further their sustainability efforts? Well, so I, I tend to take a, a, a bit of a different view on this in terms of what people can do. I, 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 I always tell people that the first thing they should be doing to engage with um, sustainable practices is become a part of the community and understand your local ecosystems, your local culture, understand who the people are in the community and, and love the place where you are. Because if, if we don't all collectively love our local places, we are not going to be as effective at protecting those places and implementing strategies that ultimately have a big impact. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I always say the first off, start with your community and make sure you you know are able to help create a place that you love and that other people love so that they will continue to to protect it in a, in that way and that, and that goes for local ecosystems but also goes for urban environments right i mean we we constantly see that people who live in urban environments that have um you know very strong community ties those communities tend to be cleaner they have you know less litter and violence and crime problems and so you know community is a big driver so that's sort of the first thing um you know you really need to be passionate about your place in order to to make a difference and then you know secondly i think it's really important for homeowners and small business owners to consider their their voting and their shopping habits i think that a lot of times i like to say that you know you vote with your wallet too and so uh, a small business owner can send a message to a larger society by something as simple as purchasing recycled content, you know, toilet paper for their restrooms. That sends a message to their 
customers and to their vendors that that's an important issue to them. And so those sort of little things are, they really do add up, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I think it's important that people check in with and, and make requests from their elected officials that they're uh, able to make changes at a, at a larger level too. Those are, are big things that, that people, whether they're homeowners or businesses, really do have influence within the community and can make a big difference in that regard. Um, and then also, I think the biggest thing, whether it's recycling or turning off the lights or whatever the sustainable strategy is that you choose, I think it's so crucial to recognize that we all can make a difference. You know, I think a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to recycle. What What is the difference that one person can make that one plastic bottle in a landfill is going to make? But, you know, with the the number of people in the world today and the number of us that are are using materials and, and uh, energy sources, making choices about how our waste is collected and, and reused or recycled, those all add up to really big impacts. And so, you know, I think people just need to remember that, yes, I'm a single person, but I'm part of a larger community. That community is part of a larger city or state, country, global and, you know, as as we look at those individual impacts, they really do add up. And so so I always encourage people to to make sure they know that you can make a difference. And that's, you know, empowering people to, to have that responsibility and that sort of, you know, desire to, to go out and make a difference, I think is is probably the most important thing. Sarah, well I love said, that. yeah. So, Clayton, if people would like to learn more about um, you or Ambient Energy, where can they find that information? Well, so probably easiest thing would be to check out our website, and that's ambient-e.com. So A-M-B-I-E-N-T, then a hyphen, letter E.com. It's funny because if you Google ambient energy, you very well might come up with a, a utility company in Texas called Ambit Energy. So it's hilarious. We get phone calls all the time from people saying, I have a question with my electric bill. We say, oh, yeah, you're looking for <laughs> not so, us. Anyway, it's kind of a funny thing. But, yeah, website's a great resource. And, of course, we're on uh, Facebook and things like that as well. So we're uh, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And um, be happy to connect with anyone in that regard. Uh, there's, you know, we're always looking for partners and new team members as well and uh, get involved in making the world a better place. So. Fantastic. Hopefully we can hear it. connect. Well, we'll definitely put um, that in the show notes. And to learn more about GRNE Solar and the WhatsApp podcast, you can find us at our website and across social media at GRNE Solar and on Instagram at WhatsApp Podcast. Please subscribe, tell a friend, leave a five star review. And now you know, WhatsApp. <laughs>